الله وكفى والصلاة والسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم من المؤمنين رجال صدقوا ما عاهدوا الله عليه فمنهم من قضى نحبه ومنهم من ينتظر وما بدلوا تبديلا وقال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يحمل هذا العلم من خلف كل خلف عدوله ينفون عنه تحريف الغالين وانتحال المبطلين وتأويل الجاهلين أو كما قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم Most respected of my kiram, brothers and elders The discussion that we have is about the ulama Yawun one of the first questions that might come to anybody's mind that what is the purpose of discussing this topic there are many objectives among the objectives is to pay tribute to these great personalities who have played such a vital role in keeping deen alive in the Indo-Pak subcontinent and throughout the world and to acknowledge the contribution that they have made to the upholding and safeguarding of deen this is something which happens from time to time people pay tribute to almost anyone and everyone sometimes people pay tribute to a disbeliever who has died because of some kind of humanitarian work he did Whereas that person is now, if he left on Iman, he is doomed forever. So we shouldn't have any confusion about some of the basic and fundamental aspects in terms of our deen and aqaid. That a person for his salvation in akhirat, Iman is a fundamental requirement. There is no salvation without Iman. So in any case, that's another topic. But the point is that people pay tribute to anyone and everyone. Why should we not pay tribute to these great personalities? Amen. Then the further point on that is that we who are sitting here in South Africa, we are directly indebted to these great personalities of the of Dalum Deoban and the founders and the Akabir of Deoban, because South Africa, especially this part of the country, KZN and what was then known as the Transvaal, now all the various provinces that make up the tra- that area. So a lot of deen that is existing, is existing on the foundations that was laid by those who were directly from the Oban, or who were from the branches of the Oban. And much of the fruit that we are plucking today the seeds were planted by these people. And the ground was dug and the hard work and whatever other efforts go into it, all that was done by these people. We are plucking the fruit only. So to recognize this and to understand, and then the very important part is, that when a person has understood, number one, that who's laid the foundations in terms of our existence, in terms of our 
day-to-day life in terms of our deen, meaning our being in deen, when these were the personalities that were directly responsible or via their students, we received this. And they made such a tremendous effort in passing on this message of Allah Ta'ala to us, in passing on the way of Rasulullah to us, in that pristine purity. And their efforts were so widely accepted. Then this is the crucial part, that when we have received it via such a clear stream, what is the need now to look elsewhere? And to recognize the source, and having recognized the source, to now continue from where things have been carrying on very, very smoothly, very clearly. And the thousands of people that have tread this part in, this, in the light of these guidance and teachings, and have safely reached, why would we want to try and reinvent the wheel? So in any case, this is the objective, this is the purpose, and especially in our country, as we mentioned, and especially in this part of the country, the structures of deen that we see existing, which, alhamdulillah, are flourishing in many instances, the effort of the masajid, the makatib system, which is to many, in, many, in many ways, it is almost like unique in South Africa, which has been exported from South Africa elsewhere. But it came to South Africa via the Olama of the Oban. And they were the ones who planted the seeds. So this is something which has kept Deen alive. And one will not fully appreciate this unless one makes that comparison. There are many Olama of South Africa who are currently in South American countries, over 35 of them currently. Ask them and speak to them or those who have gone to these countries where hundreds of thousands of Arabs had migrated over time from various Arab countries had migrated to South America in the hundreds of thousands. But it took in some instances one generation, one generation for them to lose their deen. And two generations down, that child, besides knowing his grandfather was a Muslim, he doesn't know anything. He doesn't even have any idea of what the kalima is. He hasn't heard anything about deen. And besides, and forget anything else, even many lost their names. Because in order to keep themselves fully integrated in that community that they had adopted, the parents changed their, or kept the names of their children also according to the place. They forgot about their Islamic identity completely. And if you look at, in South Africa, so many, over one and a half centuries have gone since the Muslims have come to this part of the country. But Alhamdulillah, Allah's fazal, it's only His grace and His mercy the deen to Allah, despite the many, many weaknesses and the very serious problems sometimes that are in our communities. But at the same time, we have tremendous shukr to make that Allah Ta'ala has provided these structures of deen. To a large extent, it is due to this makatib system. It is due to the effort of the masajid, the ulama kiram and where this was missing, and it's still missing in many places, people who are migrating there are getting completely drowned in that environment, and one, two generations down, there's no sign of anything left. So, where did this all start from? What was the source? Who planted the seeds? This is what we need to always remember, and to acknowledge, and then to know what to do thereafter. One other question would come, that where the ulama of Deoban, the only people that... Uh, 
made such contributions to deen, we pay tribute to all the ulama of every era. And no matter which part of the world they were in, all those who have served deen in whichever part of the world, they have served deen in the correct, in the light of the Quran and Sunnah, we pay tribute to every single one of them. But at the same time, a person is naturally more closer to his own father and grandfather than somebody else's grandfather. He'll respect everybody's grandfather, everybody's father, everybody's uncle, and he might sometimes respect somebody else's grandfather more than his own also. Sometimes it happens. But his natural affinity is with his own grandfather. Respect is in his place, but the natural affinity is his own parents, his grandparents. As a result, he'll talk more about his father and his grandfather. These were our spiritual fathers, spiritual grandfathers. We receive deen via them, directly via them. Our deen reached us through this chain. And we respect everybody else, wherever they may be, whoever served deen in whichever way. May Allah Ta'ala fill their covers with noor, Allah Ta'ala elevate their stages in the akhirat. So we acknowledge every person's contribution. And we should and we must. But then this is part of a natural thing that a person feels more attached to those who he is directly linked to. So in any case, taking it further, as far as the history of Dalum Deoban is concerned, when we talk about the Ulama of Deoban, Deoban is a town, a little town in India, and this is where this Dalum was established, and as a result, this attribution has taken place over time as the Ulama of Deoban. But the Ulama of Deoban is not necessarily something that is an attribution to a town. It is an attribution to a mission. It is an attribution to a passion to uphold deen. It is an attribution to those who sacrifice their lives for spreading deen. It's just a coincidence that this happened in the town of Deoban as the source and the base. But the attribution is to these aspects. So in any case, just to understand where did this, where did this start off from and how did this then develop from there. For this we need to just very very briefly just go into the history of India at that time. That when the British came into India and the lengthy story about how they came and finally colonized the whole country. And at that time, the atrocities against the Muslims, their agenda was very, very open and clear that they were out to destroy Islam and the Muslims. So, the first personality to declare jihad against the British was Shah Waliullah Sahib Rahmatullah That's again a lengthy discussion. And that didn't gain the kind of success on the battlefield as it was hoped. Then time went on. Again, there was an uprising in 1857 when the great Akabir of the time, Hazrat Haji Imdadullah Sahib, Muhajir Makki Rahmatullah Alayh, Hazrat Mawla Qasim Nanotri Rahmatullah Alayh, Hazrat Mawla Rashid Ahmad Gangohi Rahmatullah Alayh, and many, many other great personalities of the time were personally at the front lines. And in this uprising, they even for a period of time managed to overrun certain areas and declared as Darul Islam. But then the British forces finally overcame them. And this 
again was not successful on the ground. Allah Ta'ala's hikmat, Allah's wisdom. We cannot fathom the depth of Allah Ta'ala's wisdom. Forget the depth, we can't even fathom the surface of it. We have to wholeheartedly submit to the decree of Allah Ta'ala. So in any case, this jihad didn't succeed on the ground. But during this time, because the British also suffered a lot of losses, they sat down to now analyze that what happened. And one of their agents, some doctor, William Yur, he wrote his report to the Viceroy of the time in India. And he wrote an analysis of what happened during that uprising, because even the Muslims, the Hindus, etc. were also part of the uprising. But in his report he wrote that if you want to rule over this country, then you will have to destroy Islam and the Muslims. Basically what he said was, you'll have to eradicate. What he said was this, you'll have to eradicate the Quran and the ulama. This was his report, which actually then tantamounts to destroying Islam and the Muslims in totality. So they latched onto this. This is something we will have to do. We want to continue ruling here. We're going to have to destroy the Quran Sharif, destroy the ulama. So they started first with their mission of destroying the Quran Sharif. And wherever they could lay their hands on any copy of the Quran Sharif, they were taking it and burning it. And over time, 300,000 copies of the Quran Sharif were destroyed. Until when somebody realized what the whole objective in this is, and they brought some child who was a hafiz to somebody who was on a high position in the British government, and he made the child read, and this person realized that these people have the Quran Sharif in their hearts, their children have it in their hearts. What can we ever dream of trying to destroy the Quran Sharif? So in any case, they realized that this is doomed to failure. But then, together with that, this became part of their mission to destroy the ulama ikram. In the four years that passed after this uprising was quelled, they were brutally suppressing the Muslims all over, and in a span of four years, 200,000 Muslims were martyred. Out of those 200,000 Muslims, 51,000 ulama were martyred. There were some gallows that were set up in the big masjids of India, the Jama Masjid of Delhi and various other masjids. In the courtyard, makeshift gallows were set up. And in one day, 200 ulama, day after day, 200 ulama at a time were being hanged. And untold atrocities, unspeakable crimes were being committed. And the world was just sitting and watching what's going on, and nobody did anything about it. So this is another very painful part of the history of Muslims in India especially. And as a result of this, this mission of the British to destroy the ulama and this 51,000 ulama being martyred. The result of this was that the structures of Islam in India started collapsing. Because the masajid, the madaris, the other structures of deen attending to the social situation of the Muslims, various other things. It was all run and handled and being overseen by the ulama ikram and now 51,000 in the short space of time were now martyred. So obviously all this started collapsing. This became the catalyst for the great Akabir of the time to sit down and put their heads together and think about what is the way forward. 
that now on the ground in terms of the field we are outnumbered, outresourced, and what's going on is in front of us. There has to be a long-term program to safeguard Deen, to safeguard the Muslims. And it was out of this discussion that this decision was taken that this madrasa, a Darul Room, a madrasa has to be established. Where Deen is going to be taught and people will be trained to conduct all the various functions of Deen. And this uh, loss that has taken place as a result of all these 51,000 ulama having been martyred, this loss can be recompensed. And again people can be trained to now run the structures of Deen. So this is the background in which this uh, Darul Room was finally established and it commenced. Now to just get to the point of this Darul Room itself, again briefly on the note of the Darul Room, when this decision was taken that this Darul Room must start, so how did it start? So when we want to start something, then very high on the agenda will be and what is going to be the budget and who will be the president and who will be the treasurer obviously is a very very important post in the whole thing <laughs> because after all he has to go and look for the funding and all these kind of things would become the major part of the discussion here there was no big discussions about all these issues the madrasa was decided to be started it started how it started it started with one ustad and one student under a pomegranate tree. This was the seed that was planted. One ustad, one student under a tree. No structures, nothing. It was in the courtyard of a masjid and that is where it started. And this was the ikhlas with which it started that this one seed that was planted, one ustad and one student, but if today we have to count, forget the number of students that are in the various institutions, if you go to count the number of institutions, institutions would include the major institutions such as Dalrooms and Madaris and the Makatib, if you have to count this throughout the world, that are directly or indirectly linked to Dalroom Dioban, which we can call them all branches of this great institution, it will, conservatively speaking, run in the hundreds of thousands very conservatively speaking. And if it, somebody says it's past a million mark, that would be very, very likely. It would be more than a million very easily. But we started from, from this one ustad and one student. So this is a very big lesson for us, that deen, deen is Allah Ta'ala's. He is the protector of deen. If we do what we're supposed to do in the correct manner, the barakat comes from Allah Ta'ala. We are supposed to do what is our responsibility. Numbers don't make it happen. Allah Ta'ala's Qudrat makes it happen. We need to turn to Allah Ta'ala. So in any case, this is where it started off from one ustad, one student, and in this manner, this work started. Then, as time went on, more students came. Now there was a need to now starting on some structures. Again, the very big lesson the work started first and the structures were dictated by the need of the work. It wasn't that the first a structure was put in place and now the effort was of how to make the structure function. It was already functioning without a structure. 
now the, the functioning demanded that there should be some structures. So in any case, now that the structures now were required, so it was decided now to build some kind of boarding facilities. So a person who was in the field, one contractor, so to say, he was called in, and then some discussions took place. And one of the days they went on site, and they marked the site where the foundation should be dug. In any case, now this person was told to continue now to start off with the work. So a day or two later, the seniors of the time, the carbine of the time came, so now just inspect what's going on. This work has started, or what is going on. They found that these foundations have been dug very much bigger than what was the original marking that they had marked. So they asked this contractor, this person who was now entrusted with the job, that we had marked off this area, why are you digging the trenches in a much bigger space? So when this question was put to him, then he finally eventually said that this I have done. Now this is something which Allah Ta'ala, this is a gift from him. Man ra'ani fil manami faqad ra'ani fa inna shaytana la yatamassalu bi wa kama qala al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is reported to have said, the person who sees a vision of myself in a dream, then he has certainly seen me. Shaitan cannot impersonate me. So dreams, where a person gets the ziyarat of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa this is a great ni'mat, great basharat. Sometimes it's guidance, sometimes it's just some encouragement. So in any case, he says that I was blessed with the ziyarat of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa in the dream. And I was told that these markings are insufficient. The space that is marked out is insufficient. This is something to be made bigger. And then in the dream, I was told where to dig the foundations. And it was marked out for me by Rasulullah in the dream. See, when I woke up in the morning and came to sight, I saw the, the effects of that marking on the ground. And therefore, I've dug it according to those markings that were shown to me in the dream. And the effects of which I actually saw on the ground. Now, this is that foundation on which this uh, great institution was established. And this is the background to it. So, This is the grace of Allah Ta'ala. Allah Ta'ala blesses whom He wishes. This is how this great institution commenced. Just to now move on, that this was a little bit of history about the institution itself. But now to get to the personalities behind the institution. As we said, Dioban is a place. And this Darloom was established there, so it became, uh, the attribution became towards Deoban, and we call it the Akabir of Deoban, because we, these are the personalities that were involved in establishing this Darloom. But they themselves were living the legacy of their seniors. They were living the legacy of Hazrat uh, Sayyid, Hazrat Shah Ismail Shaheed, Hazrat Sayyid Ahmad Shaheed, and then these people, Hazrat Shah Waliullah Sahib, on top of them, and then Hazrat Mujaddid al-Faisani, so this is not something that just came out of nowhere. This is something that was a legacy that was passed on all the way from the top. It is just that this became revived in this very, very great manner, and in a very dramatic manner, from this end of the world, that if one considers that to a very great extent, Deen has spread throughout the world generally in one of three ways. 
especially we're talking about that amount of deen that has spread via or rather from the Indo-Pak subcontinent. And then through other places also which came via the same spot, the same source. One is via the Makatib and Madaris. So a large extent of this has started off from this source. Because it all had died down over time. In India, at once, once upon a time, there was this King Akbar. And he suppressed Islam to such a point that he totally distorted deen. He completely distorted deen to the point that he made his own deen, called it deen ilahi There was no such thing as Farz Ghusal in this deen. Azan was now something relegated. Salah was something not necessary. In other words, there was no deen. And the masses were all gone in this direction. And then this revival came from the personality of the Mujaddid al-Faisani rahmatullahi And from there this legacy started again. So this is not something that came out of nowhere. It is linked back all the way up in that unbroken chain right up to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa But then because it got revived here and flourished from here, this is where the attribution came. So when it is spread by the Makatib and the Madaris, we'll find the source of it again, Darulam Dioban, to a very large extent. To the extent that even in the Arab lands, just to take one, one example, approximately 23 years ago, Allah had blessed us to spend one Ramadan in Masjid Al-Aqsa in Palestine. At that time, there was one Hivs Madrasa, uh, or rather there were three or four Hivs Madrasas. There was not yet one complete Hafiz from Palestine yet. There were many, mashallah, had already started one, two years prior to that. Somebody was 10 paras, somebody was 15 paras, somebody was 20 paras. But there wasn't besides one very old Hafiz at that time that was, had completed wherever. Nowhere there was a complete Hafiz of the Quran Sharif. There were about maybe half a dozen Hibs Madrasas running in various parts of the country. And these Hibs Madrasas started off where there was nothing. Not one Hibs Madrasa also existed prior to that, maybe about four or five years prior to that. Started off from where? It started off when Jamaat from South Africa went. Hazrat Maulana Musa Dorgat Sahib of Dalum Azadwal was in that Jamaat. And he was the first person that established a Hibs Madrasa in Palestine. Now this again, his source, Darulum Dioban. Allah Ta'ala made it in the Hissa and Nasib of South Africa to become the conduit to take it to Palestine, Masjid Al-Aqsa, the third haram. Now this is one example of many. So this is one line through which deen has spread. You will find a very big contribution coming directly from Darulum Dioban in the line of the Masdaris and Makatib. And now, as we said, go back to what we discussed earlier, South America. We are talking about where hundreds of thousands, maybe perhaps more than a million, I don't know the exact number, some say it's in a million, Arabs are living in these areas, but there is no deen, and deen is coming alive again, through the makatib, through the madaris that are being established there, through the other efforts of deen, and again, to a large extent, the ulama of South Africa that are based there, Allah Ta'ala give them barakat in their lives, health, wealth, Allah Ta'ala assist them in every way, this is a tremendous qurbani that they are making, and they Roots are again Darulum Dioban. They've studied in our Madaris in this country, and their roots are again Darulum Dioban. Then it spread through the effort of Dawat and Tabligh. Hardly any part of the world has been left untouched. The roots of that again, Hazrat Muhammad Ilyasab and his roots in Darulum Dioban. And then through the line of Islam and Tazkiyah and Tasawuf, the Akabir that 
where the fountain heads of this revival via this line of deen, again Darulam Dioban. And if you put these three efforts of, three lines of efforts of deen together, then let alone touching every continent or touching every country, it won't be far-fetched to say every town and little village also has been touched in some way or the other. So this is the barakat that has come out of this one ustad and one student under this one tree. And this is how deen has come throughout the world in so many ways. So now who are these personalities behind it? This is the aspect to now get some small glimpse of. And to understand these personalities, there are thick biographies of them that are available. Uh, some of it is translated into English, many is still only in Urdu, etc. So those thick biographies also, the biographers in the introduction, they write that we could not even scratch the surface of these people's lives. After having put those thick biographies together, they acknowledge we couldn't even scratch the surface of these people's lives. We will just barely to understand them in the light of some incidents in their lives, or some little anecdotes about them, without any sequence, just in random, just to take some of their incidents, and we'll get a glimpse, a very, very slight glimpse of the caliber of these people, and then we'll understand what was the reason for this barakat that came in their efforts. Among the founders of Dalum Deoban, we took his name at the beginning, Hazrat Ma Qasim Nanoti Rahmatullah a giant of his time, very, very great personality. He, Allah Ta'ala had blessed him with tremendous barakat in his life, though he didn't even reach the age of 50. He passed away before he reached 50. But the work that he did and the contribution that he made is mind-boggling. He was a person of a very high caliber. He was responsible and he had drafted out the constitution of Darulam Deoban. And just to get a very, very small look into the mind of this person, into his heart, from what he put into this constitution, among the many things, just one or two things, one of the clauses that he put into the constitution was that not a cent of government funding will ever be accepted by this institution. Now, generally something is going to start off with this big ambitious plans and whatever. So the biggest concern is funding and if some government department showed interest, don't worry, we, our checks are open for you. Then it's already in. But he had foreseen something else. That as soon as any kind of government funding is going to be accepted here, the doors of interference are going to be open. And he entrenched it in the constitution that not a cent of government funding will be accepted. Then furthermore he wrote something which shows the high level of tawakkul that he had. He said that this institution must not even ever have any kind of fixed income. Meaning some investment. It's not impermissible to have any investment which is probably, which obviously which is within, totally within the limits of shariat. Whatever, maybe some property that is bringing some kind of income or something. It's not impermissible. But again, this was his foresight into matters. And he said there must be no fixed income. There could be many, many reasons why a person of this caliber put this kind of clause. But one of the aspects was that as soon as there is a lot of fixed income, then the gaze starts falling on the income, the gaze starts falling on the means, and it shifts from Allah Ta'ala. Then the du'as also don't have that kind of fervor in it. It's all found now. You don't worry about anything. 
Whereas these things don't work on means. Allah Ta'ala provides the means is Darul Asbab. It'll happen with the means. But it is not dependent on the means. Allah Ta'ala makes it happen. But it'll happen with the means. And as the means are required, Allah Ta'ala will make it available. But in that process, somebody will shed tears. Somebody will wake up in the dead of the night. Somebody will cry to Allah Ta'ala. Allah Ta'ala will make it happen. But when that stops, because now the reliance has come on means, then that's when the barakat is gone. But when the means are also sometimes little, and the reliance is only on Allah Ta'ala, because you can't see where it's going to happen from. You've got the trust, but you can't see the outside apparent means happening. That's when the trust and tawakkul Allah Ta'ala is even greater. So in any case, this was among the things that he had put into the constitution. Just one incident about his life. When he got married, so he got married into a very wealthy family. So in any case, now his wife came on the first night of marriage, she came home. So she came completely bedecked in all that jewelry because now she came from a very wealthy family. And in that time, the wealthier they were, the more the jewelry that daughter went with. So now she came bedecked in all this jewelry. So in any case now, he's sitting and talking to his wife now on the first night. So he starts off the conversation on some gentle note. And then he comes to the point and says that, uh, look, one of the very important things in a marriage is that there must be compatibility between the spouses. And compatibility in all the various different aspects, one of it is there. Financial standing. One is very wealthy, the other is very poor then it's going to be difficult for them to be totally compatible. So now, you are so wealthy, and I'm so poor, for us to be compatible, one of the things is, I must also become wealthy like you, then we both will be compatible. Now that's a very difficult thing. The other is, you become like me. And then on that note, he continued giving her so much of targheem, that in that sitting eventually, she removed all that jewelry and gave it to him that you may now dispose of this as you please. A good amount of that he gave to Dalum Dioban and one portion of that he gave to the Khilafat that was in trouble in Turkey at the time, which was on the verge of collapse already, to try and assist that. In any case, this time came and passed. Then after whatever time it might have been, a week or two weeks, few weeks, she came back to her parents' home when she came back to her parents' home, they noticed that or realized that she doesn't own any of the jewelry that was given to her when she was sent off. So in any case, the whole detail came out that what happened with the jewelry, how it got disposed of. The father was a very wealthy person, so he didn't take it to heart that now I gave all this jewelry and he made her part with it. These people had the qadr of values. That father also had values in him. And he understood this is material which parted for a good cause. But this shows that the son-in-law is a person of values. His eyes didn't go on his wife's material wealth and try to grab part of that for himself. He rather brought her on his level. So in any case, he didn't take that to heart. He repurchased everything and now she's going back again to her husband's house. He her everything again. When she came back, now you see she's come back with everything. So that night again the same conversation started. You see, to be compatible, we have to be on the same financial level. Either I become like you, or otherwise you become like me. And then he went on in that targheeb. Finally, she took everything, gave back to him.
<laughs> you may dispose of it as, again, he dis- in all the efforts of deen that he could, wherever he wanted to put it in. When the father came to know about it the second time that this is what has happened, eventually then decided he built a house for them, that this will be a house for his daughter, they will use it. It won't be so easy for him to just give this away somewhere. <laughs> but the point is that what kind of heart this person had, that he could have now said, well, life will become very comfortable for me also. But his gaze was not on these material things at all at any level. Now this is just one little glimpse of what this personality was. There are many, many other incidents about him. Just to move on, the time is very limited. The other founder person of the, who was among the founder members of Dalam Deoban, the personality of Hazrat Mawana Rashid Ahmad Gangohi Rahmatullah Together with Hazrat Mawana Qasim Nanotwi Rahmatullah the both of them, they had been studying in a madrasa in Delhi. There were some small, small madrasas. The madrasas of that time, this was now a very formal Darululum that had started. Otherwise, there were madrasas prior to that also. The madrasa was what? In a masjid, small little masjid somewhere, wherever the village masjid. Some person has learned deen, he just makes it known, I'm available to teach deen. Anybody wants to come, they'll come, they'll learn it. When the lesson is over, they do what they have to do, he'll do what he has to do. There was no facilities of any sort, no boarding, no accommodation, no food arrangements. If some student came from far off somewhere because he got to know there's a very, very well-learned person in a certain place. So he came and Delhi was a hub for this. Students would come from far off, but no arrangements available. You make your own arrangements. And they had very poor, no financial resources at all. So among them were these two great personalities to become great personalities of their time. Now they are studying there. They had one room that was made available to them in one masjid to just stay there. Food, nothing available. At the end of the day, they would come to where the the village market, village market and open field where people would come with their vegetables from their land and they would sell. At the end of the day, whatever is sold is sold, whatever is not sold, they'll pick it up and go. Certain things, scraps, like some cabbage leaves for example, whatever else, some scraps would just be left lying there. Nobody would want it, nobody would want to take it back also. They would come at the end of the day and collect these scraps, wash them, boil them and survive on these scraps. And this is how they acquired ilm. Now this, this is that mujahada behind the scenes that brings that fragrance. And that fragrance can be then felt in a distances away. And that fragrance brings people from far and wide. These are things that are not possible to explain in terms of how you add 1 plus 1 is equal to 2. This is a different hisab altogether. This is some different arithmetic that is required to be able to calculate this. So in any case, this was the manner in which they acquired this ilm and they survived in this manner. He was also a person of a very, very high caliber in terms of his personal life, his taqwa, his consciousness of Allah Ta'ala. And this was one of the very, very prominent things in these akabir, which we will discuss in the lives of some of them again as we go ahead. Their deep love, that burning fire of love in their hearts for Allah Ta'ala. That passion for deen which drove them towards things that we cannot even imagine in terms of sacrificing for deen to serve deen and in terms of their own personal lives, their amal etc. 
So to get a glimpse of this from their various incidents, there's one incident in the life of the Kangoi, Rahmatullah Once there was some jalsa somewhere. So now the jalsa finished off and it was now time for salah. So now that wherever the jalsa was, the masjid was nearby. So he started immediately making his way to the masjid. Now there was such a huge crowd of people all just thronging everybody. And somebody persisted, is something wrong? What happened? Are you in pain? What's going on? Eventually when this persisted, he finally, with a very, very heavy voice, tears in his eyes, he said, today after 22 years, I've missed my takbir ula After 22 years, today I missed my takbir ula If we miss our salah with jamaat, that doesn't even have any impact on us that what happened how did my jamaat get missed what should I do to compensate for that make some istighfar at least it will just be an automatic thing that well it was one of those things now or it was something beyond me at the most something beyond me then there's no no need for anything and if it was not something really beyond me it's not something so serious also that's what that's what our mind tells us whereas these people understood what was the value of these aspects and when one takbir ula got missed finally, this was the mountain of grief that after 22 years, takbir ula got missed. To us, Allah knows best, it seemed like this was made to happen so that people like us today could take a lesson. Others would not have even been known that this was the extent to which he was so punctual about his takbir ula. Just to understand what was his caliber in terms of his spiritual progress. Once his Shaykh, Hajim Dadullah Sahib, Muhajir Makki, he asked him and wrote to him and asked him that for a while I haven't heard about what is your conditions, your halat. So do write something. What is your present position? So eventually on the instruction of the Shaykh now he had to write. So he wrote and he said, what can I claim and what do I have? Nothing. But in any case, with your barakat, Allah Ta'ala has blessed me with three things. Now on the instructions he has to write. The first thing that he writes is, that madah wazam barabar ho gaya. This is one statement, madah wazam barabar ho gaya. Meaning praise and criticism both have become equal for me. But what does this really mean? This is only somebody who has a very, very high level of ikhlas, who's fana fillah, somebody whose ikhlas is of a mountain of ikhlas he has, he achieves this. What this actually means is, no matter what praise somebody can shower towards me, Alhamdulillah, it doesn't have any effect on my heart. And no matter what criticism somebody can level against me, that too doesn't affect me in the least. In other words, the only concern is, is Allah Ta'ala pleased. If Allah Ta'ala is pleased with me, then nobody's criticism matters. And if Allah Ta'ala is displeased with me, the whole world's praise doesn't, make any, doesn't do any good for me. So this is only, can only emanate from a very, very high level of ikhlas. Then the second thing he said, Nafa wa zarar mein ghayrullah ki taraf iltifat nahi. Whether any harm or any benefit, Alhamdulillah, my gaze doesn't go towards the creation, towards ghayrullah. It's always the focus is on Allah Ta'ala. This has happened by the will of Allah Ta'ala. This is something that only a person with a very high level of tawheed, that is, only such a person can achieve this. Whose tawheed is very, very deep. And then the third thing that he mentioned was that Shari'at Tabi'at Ban 
shari'at tabiyat ban gayi in other words the shari'at has become my first nature when a person is hungry nobody has to give him any long bayan that look since you are hungry then what you should actually do is that you should actually go and eat all this actually they don't need nothing he is actually begging for food that better get it done quickly otherwise now just now my mood will go because I has come home a little late and now that food forget uh, it's not available it's just a bit delayed so if it's just a bit delayed then Hazrat's mood gets completely goes off and then all kinds of different colors are becoming visible so this is something which obviously doesn't fit in any way with the akhlaq that Rasulullah has taught but nevertheless that's another subject altogether but he says shariat tabiat ban gai. just like that hungry person nobody has to tell him you must eat the thirsty person nobody has to tell him you must drink water to quench your thirst likewise when shariat becomes a person's tabiat then to not go for salah is like a person who's dying of thirst he can see the water and he doesn't go towards the water it's impossible he naturally goes to the water at the time of salah this person naturally just rushes to the masjid and just as a person sees a snake nobody has to tell him run from here he naturally just runs away likewise when shariat has become the tabiat of a person any sin any haram he naturally flees from it now this is that very high level that Allah had blessed him with and this is the caliber of person he was just to finish off his one incident one more incident of his he was imprisoned by the British on a charge of treason that he is was trying to overthrow the British government so he was imprisoned under the very harsh conditions in the British prison of that time in India any case more than six months passed and eventually the charges were dropped that they couldn't they realized this is never going to stand in court so they decided to then release him when he was imprisoned he turned that prison into a madrasa all the Muslim inmates that were there now whatever their life was prior to that now they were imprisoned so he started working on them and he started teaching them deen started teaching them Quran Sharif so now this prison became a madrasa when the release order came that news came into the prison as well in the cell as well that this release order has come now it's a process it'll take a couple of days whatever and then he'll be released he'll be gone so one person started crying so he asked him, what are you crying about? He said, you are going to be released. This is the first time in my life that I am learning to recite Quran Sharif. I had never had this opportunity before and whatever my life was, I committed certain crimes due to which I am here on a long-term sentence. I might not even leave this place alive. I don't know if I'll leave it alive or not. Are you going to be released in a day or two? And I have started learning Quran Sharif for the first time. I've just come so far. And I got so much left still. That will get left forever. And Hazrat saw his zeal and witnessed how passionate this person is of trying to now complete the recitation of the Quran Sharif. He told him, you be at ease till your Quran Sharif is not complete. I'm not going. And in those harsh prison conditions, he remained for a longer, much longer period. After the release order, for several months, more until this person's Quran Sharif was com completed and then he left mm. now this passion to just impart the deen of Allah wa 
spread the deen of Allah Ta'ala, teach the kalam of Allah Ta'ala, this emanated from that burning love of Allah Ta'ala in their heart. And to be able to then take all those harsh prison conditions with a smile, this is all something that emanated from this deep love of Allah Ta'ala in their hearts. There are many other things regarding him, but we are really running out of time, but just to now, one more personality we'll discuss a bit. Allah Ta'ala gives tawfiq on some other occasion. The first student we spoke about, this Dalum started off with one ustad and one student. The first student of Dalum Deoban was, who later on became Sheikh Al-Hind, Mawlana Mahmud Hassan Deobandi Rahmatullahi, who became the Sheikh Al-Hadith of Dalum Deoban. Allah Ta'ala put such a cut in his work and efforts that as we just earlier mentioned, the three great branches of deen through which deen spread throughout the world. The people who revived it in that time and from there it spread throughout the world. If it was the effort of the line of Islam and Tazkiyah, so to a very great extent this was the effort of Hazrat Ma'ashaf Ali Thanavi Rahmatullahi. He was a direct student of Hazrat Shaykh Ulihind Rahmatullahi. If it was the effort of Dawat and Tabligh, Hazrat Ma'ala Ilyas Rahmatullahi, he was a student of Hazrat Shaykh Ulihind Rahmatullahi. If it was to take care of the political situation of the Muslims in India at that time under that very difficult conditions and then so many other parts of the world so much that happened at that time Hazrat Mawla Hussein Ahmad Madni Rahmatullahi the direct student of Hazrat Mawla Sheikh Ulhind Rahmatullahi all these great branches and then Hazrat Madni Rahmatullahi he made it his life's mission to spread deen to, spread, to, to establish makatib all over the place we spoke about the makatib effort again this traces its roots Hazrat Mawla Mahmoud Hassan Rahmatullahi, Sheikh Ulhind Rahmatullahi. There are many, many incidents about him, but just to discuss one or two, he too was imprisoned in Malta, in this prison by the British, the island of the coast of Italy, and very, very harsh conditions. The winters used to be very severe, and he was tortured on this island. But among the things, the very, very the remarkable things about him was that his fervor for deen, even in such a place, under such conditions. He was imprisoned with various others there. The day of Jumu'ah would come. So on the morning of Jumu'ah, now in a prison, the conditions for the validity of Jumu'ah don't exist. So Jumu'ah cannot be performed in a prison. So if a person is in prison, he'll have to make Zohar. So now he was imprisoned here. Every Friday, Juma would come, so he would wake up in the morning, and then he would start preparing for Juma and fulfilling all the sunnats and mustahabbats of Juma, including the aspect of taking ghusl and putting on one's clean clothes, best clothes that one is available available to one, and then putting itar and various a'mal of Juma, the citation of Suratul Kahf, etc., whatever. Then among the adab of Juma is that when it's time for Jumu'ah, then move towards the remembrance of Allah Ta'ala to Jumu'ah. So wherever he is, from that spot he would walk to the door of the cell. Walk to the door of the cell, obviously the door is locked. He would come to the door of the cell, then he would say, Ya Allah, I did whatever is in my capacity. Beyond this I can't go. He would then come and perform his Zuhar Salah. Week in and week out, this was his mamul. For as long as he was there. Now we are able to go easily for Jumu'ah, then to what time we reach, that is one big question. 
And how many adab and sunnats of Jumu'ah do we fulfill? This was the caliber of these people that their love for Allah Ta'ala was so intense that all these amal was first nature to them. And whatever was possible for them to do, they did. What was beyond them, now that cell door was locked, he couldn't walk out of it, obviously. So, well, that was beyond him. But up to that point, he did what he could do. When he passed away, and people gave, who were giving ghusl to him, they were totally shocked at what they witnessed. That on his shoulder, on his back, there were deep wounds. Very deep cuts and wounds. And it was really shocking that how many of these wounds and how deep, all the way to the bone. And everybody was totally baffled. Nobody could explain anything. What is this all about? Person got cut once somewhere, got hurt somewhere once. His whole back is full with all these wounds and such deep wounds. Nobody could find out why. Hazrat Mahusin Ahmad Madni who was his closest associate and who had given himself up for voluntary arrest when he heard Hazrat uh, Sheikh Ulin Rahmatullah was arrested in Makkah Mukarramah, the British colluded with the, the governor of Makkah of that time and they had him arrested. But as Bandi heard about this, he came immediately and handed himself up for arrest. They asked him, why you want to be arrested? He said, for the khidmat of my ustad. And he accompanied him in that prison of Malta for that period of time in those harsh conditions. That's another whole history of what kind of khidmat he made. But nevertheless, uh, Sheikh Ulin passed away, Hazrat Madni was not there present at that time. Because he had been sent away by Hazrat Sheikh Ulin himself to Calcutta to go and establish Makatib there. So then there's a need there, the people have shown interest, you go and do that. So as a result, he left a few days before the Sheikh Ulin passed away, and then he got the news of his demise, he came back. When he came back, people asked him that this is what we witnessed when giving ghusl to him, do you know anything about this? So when they asked him this question, he started tearing. And he said this was a secret between myself and him, which I couldn't expose while he was alive, because he had warned me not to ever say this to anybody. So while he was living, it was not permissible for me and not possible for me to say it to anybody. Now that he has passed away, I can now share this, what happened here. And he says that what was the case in this prison of Malta, because the Sheikh Ulhind was the head of this whole movement, he was specially targeted for the torture of the British. And every morning he would be taken away, and with hot iron rods they would brand him. They would place hot burning embers on his back. And all the time they were demanding of him, you say one line, we'll release you. We'll free you, one line. You just say that I'm not in opposition to the British. So the British government in India. He said, I will never say that. Because to say that is I'm selling out Islam and the Muslims. You can do what you want. But I will never say that. And the whole day would go like this. At night he couldn't sleep because of those wounds. And the next day would carry on like this. He says that one, we became very perturbed by all this. The rest of us could not bear this anymore. From time to time, we would make some indication. One day we all gathered around him together. And we said to him, brother, there has to be some way in which you can try and just make some tawil. Just say something which has a double meaning. You taking a different meaning, they'll understand something else. Because you don't want to make a clear statement of what they're asking you. Say something which is like a grey shaded thing, just to save your life now. And we can't bear this. 
we can't see this anymore. When he, Hazrat explains that when he saw that all of us, so to say now, have gathered against him, he got upset. And he looked up in some anger. And he says, he addressed me and said, Hussein Ahmad, don't you know I am the spiritual son of Hazrat Bilal you don't know I'm the spiritual son of Hazrat Khubeb and then he carried on taking the names of all the people who had made untold sacrifices for deen Hazrat Sumayya the first martyr of Islam and then coming down to the Tabi'een and he Imam Abu Hanifa who, whose janaza came out of the prison because he refused to toe the line of the oppressive rulers of the time and to do the wrong that they wanted and likewise, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, he carried on taking all these names of one person at a time and saying, don't you know I am the spiritual son of all these people? I will never do anything that will sell out Islam and the Muslims in any way. To save my life, but to say something which others might take the wrong meaning of later on, to say something which somebody might misunderstand later on, I am not prepared to do that. If my life goes, it goes. Since this was the, what was happening in that prison all the time, and this is his fervor, he refused to do anything to save himself out of this, to say, just make one statement and get saved and say it later, whatever he meant, he wasn't prepared to do that as well. There are many, many things more to say, but what does a person say and what does he leave out? I'll just finish off on one incident, we're talking about the, maybe finish off on something which in a way is a little bit lighter, but it's also very heavy. But it just gives us so many lessons. Many people when they hear the first part of this, mashallah, get very happy. And as the discussion progresses, you see suddenly the happiness is not as much as it was initially. So in any case, it starts off on this note. As a Tanvi Rahmatullahi, he got married for a second time. So he had a second wife. Mashallah, you see all the smiles all over the place. <laughs> so in any case, one day, while he was sitting with his first wife, so she said to him that you have, you have such a big following and now you have married for a second time. He didn't have any children for the first wife so he decided to marry again. So you got married for a second time now. So you've opened the door for all your followers to follow in your line. Now that's 100% halal, 100% Allah Ta'ala has made permissible for a person to have up to four wives. This is Allah Ta'ala's uh, shari'at and for a person to harbor any reservation or something that Allah Ta'ala has made halal and in his heart to feel but this should not have been like this. To feel that no, this, this is you know, it's something not right. That is very dangerous for Iman. So that is something there must be no reservation about. The other part of it is that if somebody says that in this time and age by and large people don't have the capacity to be able to fulfill the conditions and requirements to be able to uphold the justice that is necessary. So therefore they should not do it, not because it's not permissible, 100% permissible. That's a separate issue. Many of our mashayikh, that was the advice, somebody's personal specific circumstances, that is in his place, he'll make mashwara and he'll decide. But on a general note, this is the advice that they give. So Tanvi also, now his first wife is saying to him, that you've opened the doors, everyone will follow in your footsteps now. He said, no, I closed the doors. What do you mean you close the doors? Sometimes we also 
for our children, for others. We say, you do what I say, you don't do what you see me do. You don't do what you see, you do what I say. It doesn't work like that. People see what they see and that's what they follow. What they hear, that flies away. So his wife says, what do you mean, the door? You did something, they're going to see, they're all seeing what you did, they're going to follow you. He says, no, they're seeing more than that. They're seeing more than that. He says, they all know, they see this watch in my hand. After Asr Salah, it was the practice of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that that wife whose turn it was, he would spend the night at her place, but after Asr he would go and visit all the wives for a short while each. So on practicing according to that sunnah of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Sultan also would go and visit both wives after Asr. And whoever's turn it is, he would spend the night at her house. So he's saying to her that People are seeing this watch in my hand. That when I come after Asar, I come with the watch. If I spend 10 minutes in one house, I spend exactly 10 minutes in the other house. Not one minute less, not one minute more. Allah. They're all seeing this. People out of love would bring hadiyah, would bring gifts. So those gifts would be accepted, provided that it, there's no reason not to accept it. Because sometimes there would be gifts and Hazrat would not accept it too because there were various... Now somebody brought something small, something simple, they would accept it. So people, one villager came along. The villagers, very, very simple people, no formalities, no airs about themselves. They'll speak very, very straight, open. In any case, this person brought two watermelons and came. And he says to Hazrat that this is for your two houses. So he says, fine, you brought two watermelons and came. You are telling me you must give it to both of my wives. But what if one is bigger than the other? So he said, I He's talking in his village manner. He said, I know you very well. I know you are very, very just between your wives. I made sure I weighed both and brought two of equal size and weight. Because I know you. Hazrat had a scale in the khanqa. Hang on one side. If he had to dis- distribute something, he would make sure it was weighed properly and in equal quantity, it would then be distributed between the two homes. No. To the extent that if somebody sent something and he wanted to divide it into both the homes, if it was wrapped with some string, he would cut that string in equal halves mm. and put one part of that string in one portion and the other in the other portion and send it off. No. So now this person is saying that I weighed it, I brought these two watermelons after weighing them and making sure both of equal size. So very well, mashallah, what you did is very good. But now tell me, what if one turns out to be sweet and the other is not so sweet? So now this person in his village manner, he says, Can I, must I go and force myself inside the watermelon and go and see what it is? That's beyond me. How must I work out whether it's sweet or not sweet? That is something only after it's going to be cut and tasted, only we'll know. Okay, very well, let me show you how it's done. He asks for a knife, and then after carefully cutting one in half, equal halves, because sometimes you get unequal halves also. Many a times when things have to be distributed, then you get unequal halves. So in any case, he cut it in equal halves. Then he took the other one. Very carefully worked it out and cut it into halves. Then he took one half of this watermelon and one half of the other and put it together as one portion. And the other two halves put it together as a second portion. He said, now one goes to one place, one goes to the other place. If one is sweet and the other is not so sweet, both got the same. 
Now this was the extent of that justice. But now coming back to the lessons that we're taking out of it. One is this justice itself. But who can uphold this kind of justice? It's again those who have that consciousness of Allah Ta'ala. Those whose hearts are filled with that taqwa, with that consciousness of Allah Ta'ala. Akhirat is in front of them all the time. They are forever concerned that Allah Ta'ala is watching, Allah is aware. Allah Ta'ala must not be displeased with me. These are the sifat that were in them. And it was this sifat which brought that kind of benefit out of their work. And that contribution moved on. And this was that contribution that passed on to us. So as we started off right at the beginning, that the ulama of Dioban, they have shown a line. They have lived a life. They have uh, already cleared the path for us. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. And as mentioned right at the beginning, we are, we Muslims of South Africa, we are directly indebted to the Akabir of Dioban. Because to the great and especially a place like Durban, we have benefited from the ulama of Dioban very directly. Among the very great personalities that have directly benefited the people of Durban, right from the foundation stages. Hazrat Ma Abdul Hakum Maddi Sahib Rahmatullah Hazrat Ma Yunus Patel Sahib Rahmatullah Many other ulama ikram, just to take these two names for now, these were direct graduates of Darulum Dioban. And many were graduates of the branches of Darulum Dioban. From that time, what service they did for the people of South Africa, for the community of Durban, for the Muslims at large, can we ever forget this? Now, that main lesson out of all this, that all these people, mashallah, they followed the same very clear path. Nothing complicated about it. In terms of the aqaid, very, very clear, total i'tidal, moderation in every aspect, their adherence to sunnah, they chalked out the path very clearly. There was no, on the one side, all the bid'at were completely cleared out of the way. And at the same time, there was no extremism also. This is the kamal of the ulama of Dioban, that there was neither any, any compromising of deen, neither was the extremism in what they thought. It was that very moderate, clear path of deen, directly in the light of the Quran and Sunnah, which they received through that unbroken chain all the way from Rasulullah through the Sahaba Ikram, the Tabi'een, and down the various eras. And in that pristine purity, they removed all the dust that had settled over time due to people's interpolations and whatever else. And they presented it in a very clear and clean manner. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to become too impressed by sideshows. There might be a lot of very, very attractive sideshows. But this is a very clear path. And the history has borne testimony that many a times people thought that now this is something new and something somebody has done it in a more fancy way and so on. But history has borne testimony to this that the barakat in the simple manner in which the ulama of Dioban and the akabir of Dioban, the efforts that they made and how they presented deen, all the other fancy ways haven't matched it to one extent in terms of the output and the benefit let alone whether all the other debates about it. So this is a very clean and clear path. We don't have to make any issues about it. We must follow very, very closely in their footsteps. And inshallah, the same safe manner in which they reach their destination, with the fuzzle of Allah Ta'ala, we too will reach our destination. May Allah Tabarak wa Ta'ala elevate all these personalities, fill their covers with noor. Allah Ta'ala grant them the highest stages in the akhirat. Allah Ta'ala give us the tawfiq of emulating their beautiful lives. 
they embodied nothing but the sunnah. This is why we have to look closely at their lives, because if you look at their lives, you'll find that they applied the sunnah very closely, and that is the way for our salvation. Allah Ta'ala give us the tawfiq. اللهم لك الحمد كله ولك الشكر كله اللهم لا نحصي ثناء عليك أنت كما أثنيت على نفسك جزا الله عنا نبينا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم بما هو أهله اللهم افتح لنا بالخير واختم لنا بالخير وجعل عواقب أمورنا بالخير بيدك الخير إنك على كل شيء قدير ربنا هب لنا من أزواجنا وذرياتنا قرة أعين وجعلنا للمتقين إماما ربنا فاغفر لنا ذنوبنا وكفر عنا سيئاتنا وتوفنا مع الأبرار ربنا وآتنا ما وعدتنا على رسلك ولا تخزنا يوم القيامة إنك لا تخلف الميعاد اللهم ثبتنا على الإيمان وأمتنا على الإيمان وحشرنا يوم القيامة مع الإيمان اللهم إنا نسألك من خير ما سألك منه نبيك وحبيبك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ونعوذ بك من شر ما استعاذك منه نبيك وحبيبك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم أنت المستعان وعليك البلاغ ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم وصلى الله تعالى على خير خلقه سيدنا محمد وآله وصحبه معين